0: This audio recording is presented by City Church Orlando. Today's scripture reading comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7, verses 31 to 37. Hear the word of the Lord. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. he has done all things well he even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak this is God's word thanks be to God
1: please be seated again good morning glad that you're here it's been my uh prayer all week um that in this time this morning that we would be loved by God. That through handshakes and singing and prayers and sermons and whatever means of grace God wants to use, it's just been my hope. As I've been away from the scripture and this text and the commentaries a lot of this week, my prayer has just basically been that we would be loved by God in this time. And that when we've had so many other options of what to do with our time this weekend, choosing to be here, I'm just asking God, to intimately and individually, relationally and personally to come in to us as a group and to us as individuals and minister his gospel to our hearts. That we would leave here with more rest and peace and freedom than we had when we came. That our week would be different because we came and bathed in the love of God and that we would look forward to next Sunday being back together again and yet again finding out the story hasn't changed in seven days. God still loves his children. God is still redeeming his creation. God is still proclaiming the message of him dying on the cross and through that proclamation and through his resurrection, he is taking our hands off of created things that will always fail us and he is putting our arms around him, the one who will give us life and fulfillment. So I've got no real slick points this week, no great transitions. Hopefully a few illustrations will pop into my head. But we're just gonna walk through this text like we always do. And I just want you to know, I I think this is one of the most beautiful passages I've ever read. Um, I didn't know this until I looked through my Bible old school style at the hospital um, because I didn't have all of my computer software and commentaries available. And I didn't know that this is the only place I believe that a gospel writer gives in detail the healing of a deaf mute. We're gonna get to this question here in a few minutes. What is going on with all the details and all the weirdness of this text? And I think what we'll find is it's one of the most beautiful, not the most beautiful, but a beautiful part of who Jesus is. But this text really belongs with the text we looked at two weeks ago, which is the story of the Syrophoenician woman in verses 24 to 30. And the main reason I believe that it's meant to go with the text prior, although I did not preach on it in that fashion, was because verse 31 is such a detailed transition statement by Mark. Normally, he just hops to and fro, and he's just piecing episodes together, and they kind of just come in these segments. He doesn't give you a whole lot of detail. In fact, if you look in chapter eight, verse one, it says, in those days. So after our story, he just like picks up another story and says, in those days. But in this text, he's very detailed. He's like, he already told us in verse 24 that Jesus was in Tyre, the region of Tyre and Sidon. And now he says he's gonna return from the region of Tyre but instead of returning the way he came, going south, southeast back into Capernaum, he's actually gonna go north, the exact opposite direction of the way he needs to go if he's gonna be effective and efficient, silly Jesus. Never effective and efficient. If he was gonna go just straight to the Decapolis, he would go south, southeast, but instead he goes due north and, and he takes this circuitous route all the way around to this deaf mute. But not only do I think that these two go together and that Mark would like to see us look at them together, but I think they go together because thematically, so many things about the Syrophoenician woman and how Jesus handled her, how he gave her faith, how he drew that faith out of her. I think all, a lot of that is balanced out by how he handles the deaf mute and how he gives and draws out of him faith. And I, I think these two need to be balanced out for mature believers because sometimes Jesus treats us the way he treated the Syrophoenician woman last week and sometimes he treats us the way he does the deaf mute this week. I can't go back and handle all that we looked at last week. You'll have to listen to the podcast. And I wanna actually be really careful what I say in summarizing last week, because I might spark into your mind more questions than I'm able to answer. But last week we learned that Jesus delighted in this woman he was surprised by, and he enjoyed her because in Matthew 15, he said she had mega faith. So when Matthew tells the story in chapter 15 that Mark tells in chapter 8, he says this woman has mega faith. And last week we looked at this very simple idea, but very profound idea, that mega faith is this. It's a rightless assertiveness. One commentator and theologian said that mega faith is rightless assertiveness. I have absolutely no rights coming into your presence I have absolutely no rights coming in to your throne room. I have no rights to presume a relationship with you to where I can talk to you. I'm absolutely rightless, And yet assertive faith is the idea that I come in not because of what I've done, but because of what you've done, speaking to God. I come in not because of what I've said, but because of what you said. I come in not because of my merit, but because of your merit. And so rightless assertiveness is this balance in the gospel where we don't deserve a thing, and yet we believe based on his promises and actions that we should walk right in anyway and be actually quite demanding of him, his time, and his ear. Now, if you're new to Christianity or if you've just been trying to figure this out, my guess is that you have a problem with the rightless part of mega faith. It's hard to believe what the Bible says that even my little four day old son is wicked. He just comes out of the womb selfish. It's just hard to believe that God doesn't owe me something just because I've existed and just because I've gone through hard things and just because a couple of times I've done some good things. It's just hard for people who are seeking out the truth and who are thinking about Christianity for the first time. It's hard for us to hear that we are actually quite without rights in the gospel. We can't demand anything on our own. And yet for believers or those who are religious, who have been in the church for a long time, it's hard for us to actually believe that we're supposed to be assertive in our relationship with Jesus. That it's actually, shall we say, quite offensive to him that we're not more assertive in our relationship with him. That he wants us to come to him with the same sort of assertive, impudent, almost rude faith of the woman in the last text. And so... Even as I say that, even as I say rude, and impudent, as I say we're supposed to be assertive with God, for religious people, it's hard for us to hear that. But let me just give you a, a couple of illustrations from the scriptures. Genesis chapter 32. Jacob is meandering back towards the promised land and he encounters God. And it says that he wrestles with God and in fact, will not let God go until God blesses him. And the scriptures do not bemoan this assertiveness. In fact, it speaks well of this assertiveness and said that, that God does indeed bless him and gives him what he wanted. Multiple prophets, if you understand the ancient Near East and if you understand the language they're using, and sometimes it's very obvious, multiple prophets, including Isaiah, will go to God and they will actually bring a lawsuit against him. Asking him to do things for his namesake and because of his promises, because of who he is. You want some New Testament options. Look at Luke 11 or Luke 18, two places where Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray when they say to us, teach us how to pray. Teach us how to talk to you. Teach us how to relate to you. Teach us how to live life with you. And first he tells of a friend who keeps beating on his friend's door because he needs some bread in the middle of the night. And Jesus says he will not get up and give him bread because he's his friend. The man laying down in his house will get up and give him bread because he was so, our translations are really nice, it says persistent. It's the word for rude. And then in Luke chapter 18, God tells a parable where a widow is not getting justice. And he allows himself in the parable to be cast as an unjust judge. And he says, I will not give her justice because she's right. I will give her justice because she's nagging me with her continual requests. And he says, keep seeking, keep asking, keep knocking. And so if mega faith, if gargantuan faith, if superlative faith is the faith that surprises and delights Jesus, how could we ever get to the place where you and I are entering in to this kind of behavior and this kind of belief? I think that's why Mark puts the two stories together. Before we can enter in like the Syrophoenician with this boldness, we must first see how Jesus has come towards us so intimately that we will not begin to see how offensive it is to him that we don't enter into his presence more often, even after committing our belaboring and continual and besetting sins. He, we will not see the offense of not going into his throne room until we see the beauty, the distance, and the route he took to come to us first. So let's dig in verses 32 through 35. I don't have points, but I'm gonna talk about 32 to 35, and then I'm gonna talk about 36 and 37. So you can kind of know where I'm at in these two points. So first of all, Jesus heads straight north, takes a horseshoe-type route around Judea and Galilee and comes to the east side of the Sea of Galilee into a region called Decapolis. Now, we're, we can assume that he's avoiding the Pharisees and the Herodians. Remember, he just fought with the, the, the Pharisees at the beginning of chapter seven. We know that the Herodians, those who follow Herod Antipas are after him, that he wants him dead. And so Jesus, there's part of this that Jesus is buying time. He's buying time because he's training his disciples who will be the ones who take his message and multiply it. We're still in the discipleship training curriculum right now as we're reading in Mark chapter seven. And not only that, he's still seeking rest. Do you remember last week, he went up to Tyre and Sidon, a place where no good Jew would go because he just wanted, wanted a break. He's just worn out. He didn't get it because of the Syrophoenician woman. And now, <laughs> excuse me, he's meandering around into Decapolis. Now, we've heard of Decapolis before. If you haven't been here, I apologize. We've been just kind of walking through the Gospel of Mark kind of verse by verse, chapter by chapter. But do you remember when we were in the Decapolis earlier in chapter five? Remember Jesus and his disciples are on the boat and they go across the Sea of Galilee and they land on the easterly side? And a man from the tombs comes out and starts screaming and hollering and he's filled, we find out, with like five to 7,000 demons. And this man is naked and he has rocks and he's cutting himself. And the community has tried to restrain him and control him through chains and the like. And he's too strong and too powerful and they can't keep wraps on him. And so Jesus, right when he gets out of the boat at night, is met by this man. Jesus delivers this man. He exercises the demons from him. Remember, they go into pigs and down the river or down into the sea. The crowds come out, those who own the pigs, and they're like, what happened to all our pigs? We don't really care about this man, but our pigs are gone, and that's how we live. And so they say, Jesus, get out of here. And so Jesus gets in the boat. He starts to leave, and the man says, hey, can I go with you? Very strangely, because at this point, the disciples aren't doing so well. Someone actually wants to be with Jesus, and he says, no but I want you to go back to your friends and family in your little neighborhood and I want you to report what I've done for you. Well, we'll come back to this in a little bit. The Gerasene demoniac does not go to his little neighborhood and report what he has done. The Greek tells us he goes to the Decapolis, the region of 10 cities, and he proclaims all that God has done for him. So when Jesus comes to the Decapolis thinking I'll find some rest there, he's actually met by lots of crowds. And some friends have a friend who's deaf and our, our, our text tells us he actually has a speech impediment. He's not mute. So in other words, we can gain from that idea that at some point in his life, he could speak. At some point in his life, he could hear and he learned how to talk. But either through injury or disease, it's my, my guess, is through injury or disease, he has come to this place where he can no longer hear and so he can no longer hear himself when he talks. And so he stutters and stammers and most likely he has a decibel problem. You know, he and his friends are at the opera and like, shh, you're talking too loud. And he's like, what's that girl's name over there? Except for he stutters and stammers. And so the friends are probably quite tired of this. And they're like, there's the healer. Let's get deaf mute guy to the healer and let's even do something about this. And I would just stop right here and ask you, over and over and over in Mark, it just says he went through all of these regions and he was teaching and healing and he was exercising demons. And why in the world does Mark stop and give all of these details? I mean, we have to, uh, we have to just believe it's because Jesus actually did these details. And that, that, that Peter, Simon Peter, who is the main reporter to Mark, Simon Peter must have told Mark all of these details. And so the question then comes not from Mark, but to Jesus. And the question is, why did Jesus do all these weird details? I mean, let's just think about it. I I, I don't really um, know what you think about this. I I was stunned by this earlier this week, and I actually started asking myself these questions. And the first thing I realized is be thankful, because we don't have the details of a healing of a deaf mute man anywhere else in Scripture. So be thankful. Be thankful because this story is not in Matthew or Luke. It's only one of three stories that are not in Matthew and Luke. And so the question becomes, did he have to do this? Could he have, he, he have just healed this man from a distance? Well, sure he could. He just did that to the Syrophoenician's daughter. Never even saw her little daughter. He exercised the demon based on a conversation he has with a woman. Well, could he have healed this man based on his friend's request? Well, sure he could. Remember in chapter two, the mob that cut the faithful four that cut the hole out of the roof and lowered their friend down and Jesus healed them based on their faith? Well, could he have healed this man without separating him from the crowd? Well, of course he could. In fact, the woman that had been bleeding for more than a decade, he brought her back into the crowd in order to be related to her. So was Jesus teaching the disciples a healing ritual that later they would use? So when Jesus is gone, they're extending his ministry. They must need to know that what you have to do is you have to poke them in the ears, you have to spit on their tongue, you have to say this word, and... um, (laughs) if you do all of these and your friends are over to the side with their fingers crossed, it's gonna happen. Well, of course not. You read the book of Acts and the only thing that matters is that they're healing in his name. It can't be that. What's up with all this weirdness? Let me give you a hint. Chapter seven, verses one through 23. He speaks technical, philosophical, religious, Aramaic with religious leaders. He stepped into their language and spoke to them. Chapter seven, verses 24 through 30, he speaks in jargon, cultural lingo, and story, in Greek, I might add, not Aramaic, to a Syrophoenician woman. So turn the volume off on our movie and think about what is ailing this man and what Jesus is going to do with him. I have a friend who, knows American sign language and multiple jobs through the years that he has had has been using sign language. And one of the things that his friends would always do when around me is they're always tapping you. They're always tapping you on the shoulder, tapping you, grabbing your face. It's like, look at me. I need your attention here. We can't have all kinds of distractions. I need your attention. So Jesus takes him off to the side and it says privately with him, he looks him in the eye because he's gonna communicate with a man who can't be distracted right now. And then he says, eh? Then he spits. Some theologians think he just spit. Some thinks he spit it on his hand and rubbed it on his tongue. I personally think he rubbed it on his tongue, although I wish I could say the previous, because that's a lot less weird. But the fact is, in chapter eight, we're gonna come to a blind man that he's gonna heal. It says literally, he spit into his eyeballs. How do you communicate to a man? Something's going to come out of my mouth and go into your mouth so that you can speak plainly if he can't hear. You spit, you rub it on his tongue, and then you look to heaven and you say, listen, it's either aliens or God. When you look to heaven to someone who can't hear, they're thinking aliens or God. And then he grunts, which is exactly what this man has been doing to bother his friends for so long. He says, we're gonna do something about this. We're gonna do something about that. It's gonna come from heaven. It's gonna come through me. Ephathah, be opened. And evidently, Jesus knew enough to know that he didn't have a speaking problem. He had a hearing problem. Because as soon as his ears were unplugged, his tongue was released from the chain that was holding onto it, and he spoke plainly. I don't know about you, but that's absolutely breathtaking for me. That the one who could sprinkle fairy dust from heaven and make everything okay rips through the birth canal, takes on flesh, limits himself in what he knows and understands so that he can grow in wisdom and stature like the rest of us. He enters into the ministry of a homeless wanderer on circuitous paths, He comes to a man who has been a spectacle his entire life, and instead of simply dealing with him effectively and efficiently, he pulls him aside. He looks him right in the eyes, and he says, "I want to be connected to you. I am not a healing machine. I am not going to lay down and have people touch me, and whatever ails them goes away. What ails you most deeply is that you're not related to me. You're not connected to me. We're not in intimacy, and so I am going." to give you this healing, but I'm gonna do it in such a way that you understand what's truly wrong with you. I think that's breathtaking. He's that intimate. He's that relational. He's that connectional. Listen, he could have done it so many other ways, but the incarnational impulse of Jesus would not allow it. Both Jesus and the deaf, mute man needed it to happen this way. He's human. Beautiful, lovingly, fully human. And this is how humans interact with one another in a selfless manner. Now, As I began to look at it, and my hope is that you are not limited by my ability to teach it to you, my hope is that as you look at it, and as you think about it, (laughs) meditate upon it, ponder it, my hope is that our response would be the same as his friends in verse 37, that we would be astonished beyond measure. And so if I had a point for the last point, I would call it silencio por favor, The only language that I have studied so that I can actually speak the heart language, the culture language, the language of someone's parents with them. And I had a teacher who often said to me, Silencio, por favor. It means silence, please. For those of you less educated than me with my Spanish, totally joking. What is going on with this? Please be quiet. I mean, I know what you're thinking. You're saying, Ted. I'm glad you finally got to this. I'm I'm glad you finally have a point about this because don't you remember, and this is what you're all thinking, I'm sure. Don't you remember back in chapter one and over and over and over, Jesus tells the demons to be quiet. Well, that's pertinent here, but it's not as pertinent as the other stories we've come across in Mark where Jesus tells human beings to be quiet. You're like, yeah, yeah, that's right. I remember in chapter one when Jesus heals the leper he says to him, I want you to go to the temple and do whatever the law asks of you and I want you to be quiet about this. But the leper disobeys him and goes and proclaims freely what Jesus has done. And then you think, oh yes, uh, Ted, I remember now. I remember chapter five, you rattled my memory earlier. He tells this guy to go and report to his family and friends and he disobeys Jesus and goes and proclaims it to 10 cities. We'll come back to that in a minute. You're like, oh yes, and though we don't know what Jairus did with the command, I remember in chapter five, when Jesus resurrected his daughter and pulled her out of sleep, he strictly charged him that no one should know this, and we don't know if they obeyed. So Ted, what is, what is, what is going on here? What, what's going on with this secrecy? Why, why would Jesus keep telling people to be quiet? Well, I'd like to say that I waited till this week to handle it because Mark finally tells us why, But the truth is, I just now fig- I figured it out this week. But Mark does tell us why. Look at their sermon. This is what they're preaching. He has done I'm reading in verse 37. "He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Now, see, this is a conversation that they're having. He tells them, do not tell anyone. They were astonished beyond measure and they disobeyed. And it says in verse 36, the more he told them, the more he charged them, the more he ordered them, do not speak of this. They more zealously proclaimed it. That word for proclaim is important to us. It's come up nine times so far in the book of Mark. Two times John the Baptist was proclaiming Jesus to come. Three times Jesus heals the go- Jesus proclaims the gospel of the kingdom. So we're at five. Two times the disciples were trained to go preach or proclaim or caruso. And then finally they were sent on their mission. One time we heard a sermon from a disobedient man who was a leper. One time, we heard of a disobedient demoniac who proclaimed him in the Decapolis. Instead of going, telling his friends in College Park, he got on Channel 9 and told all of Central Florida. And now they're preaching, and this is why Jesus is telling them to be quiet. Because when they get to the climax of their sermon, when they get to the, he even does this, when they get to the final nail in the coffin, when they get to that place where they're gonna close the deal, what do they say? He heals people. What is the climax of the gospel? It's not, it's not that he heals people physically. This is the climax of the gospel. Here's the problem, it hasn't happened yet. It hasn't happened. They can't know what the climax of the gospel is yet. Jesus has only talked about it in parable form, like he's the seed's gonna fall to the ground and die. When does Jesus say, unleash this communication and proclamation of the gospel? It is after he dies and is resurrected. This is why he's telling them to be quiet, because they're preaching a sermon with no offense to it. Remember in Galatians 5 this week, where Paul said, Listen, don't rob the cross of its offense. This is a sermon that everyone, including Oprah, can get excited about. He heals people. Deaf people can hear. Mute people can talk. There's no offense in that. This is the gospel. This is when he tells us to proclaim it. The Lord of the universe takes on skin and lives a humble, limited life, and he grows in wisdom and stature, and every human he comes up against, he loves them as selflessly as this man, and then he moves towards the cross with no one understanding who's around him. And he goes and he climbs up on the cross... And he dies for the rebellious, foolish insurrectionists around him. That's the part that we proclaim. Something to think about. He does not want them preaching healings and exorcisms. These are only secondary signs. These are only effects of the good news of him restoring our relationship with the father on the cross. And if you don't start... At the cross, you will not get to a healing that will last forever. You'll get to a healing that lasts until the next disease or injury comes along. So let's stop just for a few seconds and let's apply this to our lives. First, I would say, this is somewhere for us to repent, starting with me. (laughs) I would say that we have the same disobedience in our hearts as the leper, the demoniac, and the crowd. We have the same disobedience in our hearts, but it has a different expression. Instead of us talking about Jesus all the time and disobeying him when we talk about him, we don't talk about him when he has said, plant every gracious seed into any heart you possibly can. And it's rooted in this idea, silly Jesus Don't you know any better? We don't wanna be quiet about this healing. You could be famous. We could get all kinds of people to come hang out with you. You could be a human king and you could kick Rome out. You're just silly. Jesus, you're a sweet guy. And we appreciate how you emotionally connect to people. But listen, this whole don't proclaim it thing is just crazy. Same heart, different expression in me. Silly Jesus. Why would I mess up this business relationship by talking about the gospel? Why would I mess up this neighborhood relationship by talking about the gospel? Don't you want my business to go well, silly Jesus? Don't you want me to not have anxiety at night, silly Jesus? Don't you want my heart rate to stay down instead of talking about the gospel, which causes my heart rate to go up? Don't you want me to feel like I'm in control and comfortable all the time? Because when I start talking to people about you, I don't know the answers to the questions. I don't know what's gonna happen next. I feel very much out of control and I just don't like it. And you're just silly to tell me to look for every door of opportunity to proclaim your gospel. Somewhere in this place, I hope you can join me where we walk right into the throne room of grace and we repent repent with rightless assertiveness. I have no right to be in here, but I am in here because Jesus died on the cross for me. And yet again, I'm going to come back to you and I'm going to tell you that I've been living out of line of your word. I've been living out of step with your spirit. I have not been doing what you told me to do. And I'm here to confess and to hate and to beg you. I confess it, I hate it, I beg you, please change me, please overcome me. Please overtake me. I will probably be back again tomorrow, but I'm here today without any rights, assertively begging you to do something about me. First point of application, just something for us to chew on. And then the second point is this, You will not move into God's throne room with such repentance and faith and you will not move out telling others about the gospel if you have not seen him come to you personally, privately, and intimately to deal with what ails you. And so my question is this, have you ever known this private love? Not conceptually in your head, but have you ever experienced Jesus taking a long, circuitous route towards you and pulling you aside from the masses and looking you dead in the eye and saying, I know what's wrong with you. I know your pain. I know your ostracization. I know the wounds that you have. I know the longings that are not met inside of you. I actually know them because I experienced them in my life. And I want you to know that what's wrong with you at the core of who you are is rebellion, guilt, and shame. And on the cross, I knew even that. And we're gonna do something about this and we're gonna do something about that and it's gonna come from heaven and it's gonna go through me and it's gonna come to you. My fear, particularly in our denomination, or Presbyterian if you didn't know. My fear is that we're a labor and delivery nurse who's never gone through labor and delivery. My fear is that we're wedding coordinators who've never stood at the end of a church and watched the groom walk down the aisle with eyes, excuse me, the other way around. Let me, don't let me lose this. We are that bride walking down the aisle and the groom is standing right up here with with tears in his eyes loving us and saying, you're mine. I want you. I want to intimately care for you. I want you to know that everything that's wrong with you, I'm going to work in and through that and I'm going to redeem you and we will spend forever together. You will be with me. I will love you with an unceasing love that you cannot fathom. And my mercies and my love for, for you are new every single morning. And I wonder if we are the wedding coordinator in the back, who has seen it a hundred times but never walked down the aisle and felt it. And I realized just by bringing this up, this could taunt many of us. This could mock many of us. This could dog many of us. Because we haven't. And not to the degree and not to the extent and not the number of times we'd like to know it. But Galatians 2.20 is just as true for Paul as it is for us. He he says at the end of that verse that we use from City Bible Reading this week and we use in our order of worship, he says, God, Jesus, gave himself for me and he died for me. I don't have much time, but I'll give you two ideas. One idea, (laughs) I'll make it one from this text and then a few ideas from scripture and what I've seen in the lives of people who love Jesus and who have been loved well by him, who have felt that love, I'll give you some ideas. First of all, another reason why I think this story goes with the previous one. Yet again, someone is feeling the redemptive love of Jesus because someone else believed for them. A little girl feels the redemptive love of Jesus because her mom has mega faith. A deaf mute has experienced Jesus because his gospel community thrust him into the presence of Jesus and begged Jesus to do something about it. You can't get to this place of intimate community with Jesus, this one-on-one intimacy, without the throngs around you, believing it for you, with you, and in you. The Bible just doesn't know that story. Secondly, apart from the scriptures, James says very clearly, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. God has said in his word, there are simple sacrificial things that I want you to do in response to my love. And when you do them, I will communicate to you my love for you in something that goes beyond your head corporate worship, singing songs, praying with other Christians, taking the sacraments, getting up in the morning and reading his word. These are all promises in scripture where Jesus says, if you will turn away from what the world is offering to you and the life that it says you can have by staying up late and watching this, by going away and doing this, if you'll just stay in the rhythms and the disciplines of my grace for you, your level of my experience, uh, your the level of your experience of my love will ratchet up as you trust me that I'm not silly and that I know what I'm talking about, and I want you to draw near. Let's pray, Lord Jesus. We thank you for <clears throat> this text, Lord. I, I thank you for the fact that my friends listen, and I thank you. <coughs> excuse me. <clears throat> that on weeks <clears throat> where we just don't have much time to do these things, that you come and you preach and you speak and you communicate, I do pray that your word would not return void. I pray that just the simple reading of your word would bear fruit in your people's hearts. I pray that whatever came out of my mouth today that is not lined up with who you are and what you're doing, I pray that it would quickly fall to the ground and be forgotten. I pray that you would correct me. Lord, I pray that whatever was from you would go deep into the hearts and souls of my friends here and that it would bear much fruit by the shining of your light through the gospel spirit, the Holy Spirit. Lord, I just ask that you would continue to be with us this morning. We are approaching yet another means of grace, yet another place where we can draw near to you in the bread and in the wine, and you have promised that you will draw near to us. Lord, I do pray that you would reveal yourself to us in deep, personal, intimate ways, that being known by you like this, we could know you and we could love others well. In your name we pray.